as it is uh, 1759, and we believe in uh, rabid punctuality here at the council, I think we're going to, um, to uh, open up this event. Uh, welcome, everyone. Thank you very, very much uh, for coming. Thank you for joining us tonight uh, for what should be uh, a really interesting debate. We've got, um, we've got an array of opinions, I think it's fair to say, on the panel, uh, which, uh, which multiculturalism often triggers but uh, which don't often get uh, an appropriate airing uh, at events. So we're, we were really, really pleased that we were going to be diverse uh, when we talk about multiculturalism. I'm Catherine Pieski. I'm the director of Counterpoint, which is the uh, think tank of the British Council. And so tonight, we are launching uh, Tariq Madud's Take Two, Still Not Easy Being British, the sequel to Not Easy Being British. This is the, the mark of a truly accomplished academic when you have a sequel. Uh, I think, you know, that's, uh, that's very, very good. But actually, tonight's, uh, tonight's event could, uh, could be um, uh, referred to as, is multiculturalism dead? Really, that is the question that we're going to be focusing on for the next hour, hour and a half. Um, I think it's a really timely debate. For s several years now, it's become fashionable to proclaim that we've moved on from multiculturalism, that multiculturalism is no longer appropriate. That's the, the, soft, the soft critique, no longer appropriate. It's done its job. Uh, where do we go to from here? There's a harsher critique that says that actually it was never appropriate uh, as a form of uh, diversity uh, management, either in and of itself or applied to the UK. And we're going to uh, probably explore both of these. Um, I think it's important for us to tackle this partly because amid some affirmations that actually <coughs> things are improving, that racism is declining, that is institutional racism uh, is declining, actually some of the mobilization that we see on the fringes of the political spectrum would suggest otherwise. Uh, so I think it's interesting to, to raise this question. Um, if the job of multiculturalism is done, uh, fair enough, but what do we move to? Uh, what, what's next? How, how do we evoke this and how do we build uh, on the legacy of multiculturalism, whether we think that that legacy is an unadulterated good or an unadulterated um, negative. For us at the British Council, I should say that this is a really important, uh, really important point. Given that we are in the business of brokering cross-cultural conversations, it's very important that we know and that we are clear what we base these cross-cultural conversations on. Um, if actually making assumptions about group identities, the importance of group identity, uh, turns out to be either wrong or old-fashioned or less productive than we thought, then we need to know. Uh, then we need to know about it. We need to build on that. So for us, it's very much about understanding the terrain on which we work. Um, what has changed or is changing? Are we working with outmoded categories? Uh, are we working with the right categories that simply need to be updated? Um, we really feel that um, tonight a lot of these issues should be uh, should come to the to the fore. So the way that we're going to manage uh, this event is that uh, Tariq Modud, who's professor of sociology at the University of Bristol and also the director for the Center of the Study and Ethnicity of Ethnicity, sorry, and Citizenship, um, will start us off by drawing on one of the chapters in particular of of his book, which is for sale at the back of the room. For 15 pounds. There are 12 copies, and I know for a fact that the person who brought them here would like to not have to bring them back with her. So uh, do relieve her of her burden, if you could. 
we also have Manira Mirza, who's Director of Arts, Culture, and the Creative Industries for the Mayor of London. And then to my left, Sunny Hundal, journalist, blogger, and editor of the left-wing blog, Liberal Conspiracy. And as I said, we have a, an array of opinions uh, here on the panel. So without further ado, I'm going to hand over to you. Thank you very much. Um, I'm very pleased to be here, and I'd uh, like to thank Catherine and Counterpoint for arranging this opportunity um, for me to uh, address, address you uh, on this topic, and thank Munira and Sunny for agreeing to be part of this panel, and not least my, the publisher of my book, Gillian um, Klein, who I'm pleased to say is present here today as well. So as uh, Catherine said, I, I published a collection of essays which were mainly kind of interventions in contemporary controversies to do with um, racial equality, the satanic verses, debates about uh, Muslims and where race relations was going or not going. I published this collection of essays called Not Easy Being British in 1992 and this is in many ways, the sequel, as, as Catherine said, as the title suggests. So what, this too is a collection of essays, and um, again, they're really uh, interventions or contributions to uh, topical debates. Uh, but the theme of them is what has happened to multiculturalism and British national identity since 1992. Uh, and again, Muslims are very much um, the focus. As Catherine said, um, as an opportunity to tell you what's in the book and to get uh, a debate with uh, my co-panelists, I'm going to present a short, a short chapter from the book, which is entitled, Is Multiculturalism Dead? Um, the chapter begins with a motto from the Commission on Multi-Ethnic Britain's report. Um, th that's often known as the Parrot Report, which came out in the year 2000 as a member of, of that uh, commission. So uh, the quote is this. How is a balance to be struck between the need to treat people equally, the need to treat people differently, and the need to maintain shared values and social cohesion. A certain kind of modest, communitarian, ethno-religious multiculturalism, self-consciously incorporating and building on ideas of institutional racism and anti-discrimination, seemed to be rolling forward in the 1990s and the first few years of this century. It found expression in the Commission on Multi-Ethnic Britain's report, The Future of Multi-Ethnic Britain, as well as in some new labor initiatives. The latter included the Lawrence Inquiry, the Race Relations Amendment Act of 2000, the funding of Muslim schools, the multiplying of ethnic minority peers, religious discrimination in legislation, or religious discrimination legislation, I should say, and the introduction of the religion question into the 2001 census. So if you like, that's my little sketch of what is it what I'm talking about when I'm talking about British multiculturalism, because of course the term itself, as we all know, has so many different meanings. And so I'm focusing on what I think is the <coughs> set of ideas 
governing those things that I just read out, and which seem to be, um, which seem to have a certain momentum in the late 1990s and the turn into this century. But from about the middle of 2001, with the disturbances in the northern towns and later the 9-11 attacks, the mood began to shift. And within a few years, most public commentators pronounced multiculturalism dead. I do not want to directly discuss this backlash, nor can I here discuss recent public policy, though I believe an analysis would show that the government, meaning you know, the new Labour government for that period, has qualified rather than abandoned multiculturalism. Rather, I would like to look at some of the criticisms of multiculturalism, which I think deserve to be considered seriously. My view is that none of these criticisms mean the end of multiculturalism, and each can and should be taken on board to some extent. I think, however, that these ideas can be grouped around those that are generally seen as qualifying multiculturalism and those that are seen as fundamentally opposed to it. So I'm going to state and then briefly respond, and you know, we'll be obviously very brief, but there'll be more time for discussion later, um, to two sets of criticisms. Those that I've chosen to say, actually, they are qualifying multiculturalism, and those that I believe are actually fundamentally critiquing multiculturalism, and as I say, respond to those. Um, I did have a PowerPoint to, to kind of show a, a map of where we were at any one point in relation to all these criticisms, but I'm afraid um, we don't have the right equipment here working at the moment. So I, I hope, this, I hope that, I mean, the structure is quite simple. I just go through a series of criticisms. Okay, so the first set of criticisms, which I believe are four, are all under the uh, heading of ideas qualifying multiculturalism. And I'm going to be very brief with some of them and a little bit more elaborate with some of the others. So the first one, basic human rights. I do not think that anyone seriously disputes that the kind of multiculturalism appropriate to Britain must be in a context of human rights. The Parek report had a chapter on human rights. But few are persuaded that multicultural equality any more than other forms of social equality can be derived from human rights. So yes, human rights rightly qualifies multiculturalism, but it can't be the basis of multiculturalism. Okay, number two, gender equality. We've increasingly become aware that some forms of abuse of women are disproportionately found in some minority communities. For example, clitoridotomy, forced marriages, you know, just two examples, we can think of others. Unfortunately, feminism has come to be used as a missionary ideology to express the supremacy of the West and the backwardness of the rest. While this is mainly on the right, the tendency is not absent on the left. Moreover, in terms of practical politics, it is clear that some of these problems, you know, like forced marriages and so on, that some of these problems could be seriously tackled only through the cooperation of the relevant communities. Strident and authoritarian approaches are likely to be counterproductive. 
and create besieged, stigmatized communities. For these kinds of reasons, there's become a regrettable polarization on these sorts of issues. But the common ground is actually considerable. <coughs> For multiculturalists clearly do not support violence, coercion, or the undermining of the legal equality of women, though there will also be a few limited areas where people will disagree about what constitutes equality. I do not have the time to discuss such cases, but can support the main point I'm making here by pointing to Anne Phillips's argument, this is in her book, um, Multiculturalism Without Culture, to Anne Phillips's argument that gender equality and multiculturalism are not intrinsically opposed. So yes, there are difficult cases, I wouldn't deny that for a minute, and I'm not saying I've got the answer to them, but I see feminism, the issues of gender equality, as qualifying multiculturalism, again, not as fundamentally challenging it or displacing it. Three, the fact of ongoing immigration and what some people describe as super diversity. We have recently experienced, are experiencing, and it is argued will continue to experience large-scale immigration. Given the diversity of the locations from whence migrants are coming, the result is not communities, but a churning mass of languages, ethnicities, and religions, all cutting across each other and creating what Steve Vertebex called a super-diversity. This is, of course, true enough. I wouldn't deny that, especially true of London. But it does not follow that the settled, especially post-colonial communities, who have a particular historical relationship with Britain, lose their political significance. The fourth and the last item I wanted to uh, look at under ideas that qualify multiculturalism is transnationalism. It is argued that globalization, migration, and telecommunications have created populations dispersed across countries that interact more with each other and have a greater sense of loyalty to each other than they might their fellow citizens. Diasporic links like this certainly exist and are likely to increase, but I'm unconvinced that the net result is an inevitable erosion of national citizenship. Consider British African Caribbean and South Asians have families in their countries of origin and in the US and Canada. But there's little evidence that most or even any branches of those families do not feel you know, British, American, Canadian, or whatever. And certainly, I'm in that position. I have extended family uh, in the United States and in Canada. And um, we all feel very British or Canadian or American even though, of course, we have a, a strong sense of being a family, and we do have a sense of having roots in Pakistan, and we have lots of extended family in Pakistan. So, yes, we are a transnational family, but it doesn't stop us from valuing our national citizenship and our national belonging. What I would say, and I'd say a little bit more about this in a moment, is that, of course, national citizenship and national belonging can't be taken for granted. It does have to be cultivated, and perhaps, you know, 
as a, as, a, as a society, as a country, we took that for granted. We assumed that it would just happen, and it hasn't perhaps always happened uh, without making some effort. Indeed, I go as far as to say that actually, I think the biggest challenge for multiculturalism is the very idea of remaking Britishness. I think that's probably the single biggest challenge. I'll touch on that a little bit more in a moment. So that's my first set of issues, which I say I see as qualifying, but not repudiating or displacing multiculturalism. So I now move to the second set of issues, which are a bit more serious, because in my opinion, they are a bit more deep cutting into multiculturalism. Because if some of these criticisms were, were right, because I've, I've agreed with all the other criticisms, the four criticisms that I mentioned, I've agreed with the, the brunt of the argument, but not the conclusion, if, if some people think it's the right conclusion from those arguments, that somehow multiculturalism is dead or out of date. But now, these three criticisms I'm going to look at now are possibly ones that if they're right, then multiculturalism is perhaps out of date or dead. So the first one, I, I grouped together a, a number of uh, ideas. Uh, I've got here community cohesion, citizenship, common values, and Britishness. I'll take them all together, which you might think is being overly simplistic, but I, I hope I hope it still is of some value. I group all these terms together, but I appreciate they do not all mean the same thing. And some will emphasize one, you know, some people will emphasize one more than the others, and might even deem one of the sets as unnecessary. Nevertheless, each of these concepts has recently been invoked as embodying the kind of commonality that members of British society need to have, and which is said to have been obscured by a fetish of difference. It is argued that Britain as a society and a state has been too laissez-faire in promoting commonality, and this must now be remedied. Hence, the introduction of measures such as a US, a swearing a US-style oath of allegiance at naturalization ceremonies, which actually was recommended by the Parek report, you know, which I keep referring back to as my kind of benchmark of multiculturalism. I described it somewhere as the high watermark of British multiculturalism. So yes, it's true that we, we need some uh, uh, swearing-in type um, ceremonies, or an English language proficiency requirement when seeking citizenship, and citizenship education for migrants, and indeed in all secondary schools. You know that's what's what's been happening, and I, I can you know see the sense of some of that. Many advocates of this approach also choose to say something positive about multicultural and suggest that they're seeking to amend it by emphasizing that what multiculturalism fails to appreciate is the necessary wider framework for its success. I would say this is true of the late Bernard Crick, Ted Cantor, and the Commission on Integration and Cohesion that reported to uh, Ruth Kelly when she was at the DCLG, among others, including most including most new Labour statements, at least during 
Flair's time. On the other hand, others promote versions of this view by expressly framing it in terms of multiculturalism is dead. While on the right, multiculturalism is seen as always having been mistaken, you know, I'm thinking of people like Melanie Phillips and the now conservative uh, education secretary, Michael Gove, a more centrist and sometimes left view is that multiculturalism was right for its time, but that time is over. For example, this is the view that uh, the chair of the Equalities and Human Rights Commission, Trevor Phillips, has expressed, and the view of the editor of Prospect Magazine, David Goodhart. A major recent example of this position is to be found in Chief Rabbi Sachs's 2007 book, The Home We Build Together, when in his earlier books, he has been an eloquent exponent of communitarian pluralism. Such critics substantiate their views by quoting each other, rather than analyzing the texts of multiculturalism. This is not surprising, as the political theorists of multiculturalism see it as a project of inclusivity. And that is how the Commission on Multi-Ethnic Britain report, the PARET report, also saw it. The best that can be said for this view is that perhaps we in Europe are more likely to think the national and the multicultural are incompatible. In other parts of the world, where multiculturalism has been adopted as a state project or as a national project, in Canada, Australia, and Malaysia, for example, it has not just been coincidental with, but at times integral to a nation-building project. Moreover, it does not make sense to encourage strong multicultural or minority identities and weak common or national identities. Strong multicultural identities are a good thing. They're not intrinsically divisive, reactionary, or fifth columns. But they need a framework of vibrant, dynamic national narratives and the ceremonies and rituals that give expression to national, uh, national identity. The national identity should, however, be woven in debate and discussion, not reduced to a list of imposed values. For central to it is citizenship and the right of all, especially previously marginalized or newly admitted groups, to make a claim on the national identity. In this way, racism and other forms of stigmatized identities can be challenged and supplanted by a positive politics of mutual respect and inclusion. The emphasis on citizenship may be a useful reminder to multiculturalists about what some of them at times may overlook, but it is not a critique or substitute for multiculturalism. I turn now to the second major crit criticism, which I call uh, critiques of group politics, and um, I'd say this can take three forms. So, first form, A. This is that liberal societies can only recognize individual rights. That's the criticism. Liberal societies can only recognize individual rights. Multiculturalism is about groups. Therefore, 
a liberal society should have no truck with multiculturalism. My response, while individual rights are fundamental to liberal democracies, much of social democratic egalitarian politics would be impossible if we did not also recognize groups in various ways, not just multiculturalism, in various ways. For example, <coughs> trade unions in relation to collective bargaining, the Welsh language as one of the national languages of Wales, the women's section in the Labour Party, positive action in relation to underrepresented racial groups in a workplace, state funding for faith schools, the exemption of turban-wearing Sikhs from motorcycle helmet safety laws. These examples could be multiplied, and they suggest that a liberal democratic polity undertakes in many different ways to recognize and empower diverse kinds of groups, not just cultural groups or ethnic minorities, diverse kinds of groups. The second critique, this is that groups such as Muslims are internally diverse. There's an argument from social theory that groups are composed of individuals. There are no essential group characteristics, and no group monism, that's monism meaning you know, that they're all kind of united by single characteristic or united into some kind of um, whole. And so to talk about groups is, this is the criticism, to talk about groups is theoretically facile and usually masks a political motive. It is true that we can sometimes work with crude ideas of groups. I think we all have to acknowledge that. But that is not the same as saying that the groups that multiculturalists speak of do not exist. We do perhaps need looser concepts of groups, but the issue is to do with the nature of social categories, because in a way all our concepts have to do some simplifying in order to be concepts. Take the concept of chair, you know, nothing to do with society, the concept of chair. It has to cover a lot of different kinds of chairs. Not all chairs look alike. There are the kinds of chairs we're sitting on. There are chairs without backs. There are armchairs. There are chairs with uh, armrests. There are sofas, etc., etc. But the concept of chair is not invalidated by the fact that chairs can take a variety of forms. All our concepts have to work like that. And what's true of chairs is even more true of social categories like women, class, nationality, and so on. So the problem lies with social categories, not multiculturalism per se. In this sense, all group categories are socially constructed. But it is clear that people do have a sense of groups to which they feel they belong or from which they feel they're excluded. So groups have a social reality given people's uh, sense of belonging and sense of exclusion. One of the reasons we cannot ignore the communitarian conceptions of difference is that minorities often see and describe themselves as sharing a group identity through such categories as Jewish, Muslim, or Sikh, among others. If we accept that these are no less valid than categories of working class, woman, black, or youth, it appears inconsistent to reject some groupist categories 
simply because they're subject to the same dialectical tension between specificity and generality. That's to say, you know, a chair like this compared to chairs in general, or a Muslim like this compared to a Muslim in general. Because yes, there'll be a diversity of Muslims, there'll be a diversity of Jews, there'll be a diversity of women, but that doesn't mean that the diverse Muslims aren't all Muslims, or the diverse women aren't all women. So there'll always be a dialectical tension between specificity and generality. And all group categories are subject to, to this. Nothing particular about multiculturalism here. This is not to essentialize a term that some people use, or reify, however, since the category of Jew, Muslim or Sikh, can remain as internally diverse as Christian, Belgian, or middle class, or any other category helpful in ordering our understanding. Um, I can see that I'm running a little bit out of time, so I'm just wondering uh, how to use my last two or three minutes uh, and, and leave something, something out. I'll tell you what, I'll leave out what was going to be my third um, critique uh, which I'm going to reply to in relation to, you know, group politics or groups don't exist. Well, of course, you're free to ask me about that later <laughs> if, if, if you should wish to. And I'll conclude by going on to the, to the last criticism because actually it's quite a, a big, elaborate topic and it may well be that the panelists want to engage with it, in which case I should, I should say something uh, about it. And that is the whole topic of secularism. Multiculturalism was not conceived in relation to religious groups, but groups championed by multiculturalists as racial or ethnic groups have also started asserting and sometimes giving primacy to religious identities. This then causes friction, or worse, with those, including many multiculturalists, who assume that religion should be a private, not a public, even less a political and certainly not a state matter. From the other side, this looks like an arbitrary, if historically grounded, by historically grounded I mean if it has some historical justification, bias against one kind of minority. A bias because it's not clear why religious identities have to have this private restricted uh, character and not say gender or ethnicity or class or sexual orientation or anything else. So this has divided multiculturalists and weakened support for multiculturalism. And the issue is not a minor matter, I mean by no means. Given, for instance, this is just one reason, given the political salience of Muslims and the estimate, only estimates are available, the estimate that they may form about 10% or more of the population of Western Europe around, say, 2035, with three times that proportion in the major cities, in some of which Muslims may indeed even be a majority. But secularism is not, and this is my reply now, secularism is not in all forms inherently opposed to an ethno-religious communitarian multiculturalism. As a radical ideological idea, it looks like that. And, that, and this is the favored interpretation in France. But as I explain in other parts of the book, in most democracies, <coughs> secularism takes more moderate forms and 
compromises between organized religion and the state are the norm. I'll just repeat that last phrase because this is really quite essential. Compromises between organized religion and the state are the norm in what we call liberal secular democracies. They're the norm, not the exception. These compromises, of course, vary from country to country. For example, in the UK, bishops sit in the legislature and religion is absent in electoral competition. In the US, it's the other way around. But both countries are secular polities. This means that in every democratic secular polity, there are precedents, status quo arrangements, and institutional resources for accommodating some public claims of religious groups. I would suggest, therefore, what multi that multiculturalists have to study these historical arrangements, for example, state funding of faith schools in England, and look to see how they can be multiculturalized. In other words, used to meet the needs of new groups of citizens. Sometimes the extension of a precedent will be regarded as controversial. For example, extending the legal recognition of Jewish courts or tribunals of arbitration on matters such as divorce, extending the Jewish ones to cover Muslim cases. You know, we know that's fairly controversial. And sometimes faiths relatively new to Britain may raise issues without clear precedent. So my point is not that there will be no political dilemmas in this area, but that there is no reason to exceptionalize and over-problematize the claims of religious groups by deceiving ourselves into thinking that they're incompatible with secularism. Okay, so I am now at my conclusion, which is that many genuine criticisms of multiculturalism have to be taken seriously. But none of them are reasons for abandoning rather than strengthening through modifying multiculturalism. This is a bit like the um, Bill Clinton motto that he had for um, uh, affirmative action. He said, mend, not end. So I say none of them are reasons for abandoning rather than strengthening through modifying multiculturalism. In particular, that the three alleged challenges are actually akin to the qualifying ideas in that they are correctives, not alternatives. I'm sympathetic to all three challenges when they are combined with multiculturalism and used to correct, strengthen, and go beyond each other. This is what I believe we tried to do in the Commission on Multi-Ethnicism. <coughs> Hence the quote at the very beginning about balancing the different, the different needs of commonality and difference and so on. It is a difficult and unstable combination, but I continue to think it is the task of the moment. What we need is a vision of citizenship that is not confined to the state, but dispersed across society, compatible with the multiple forms of contemporary groupness, and sustained through dialogue, and through plural forms of representation that do not take one group as the model to which all others have to conform. And of course, new reformed national identities. That is multiculturalism. Thank you very much. Thank you. Um, the way that we're going to do this now is I'm going to open up to my two speakers um, for five minutes or so. Um, and I'm going to hand over to you first, Mary, because I think 
um, you will add a complimentary uh, review. Uh, you, you're in this month's uh, issue of Prospect, along with a number of others who voice quite clear criticism of, uh, uh, of multiculturalism and its potential shortcomings. And even though you recognize some of its benefits, you actually um, you, you recognize more of the problems that it's given rise to rather than, rather than the benefits. So I, I'd love to hear you First of all, I'd like to say I think it's, um, it's a very important debate and it's good that Tarek has presented, uh, I think, quite reasoned uh, discussion of, of, of the criticisms of multiculturalism um, on a topic that is characterised by bitterness on both sides often, it feels. Uh, it's good to, um, to have the opportunity to discuss in a more kind of calm and uh, rational climate uh, you know, what, what it is that we're talking about, what the criticisms might be, whether they're valid or not. So I think it's The title question is multiculturalism dead. Is multiculturalism dead? Uh, I'm not sure I understand what that means because, uh, however you define multiculturalism, it feels very much that it's with us. If it's if you take it as a fact of life, as the fact that we have a very diverse society with lots of uh, immigrants from around the world, very much obviously still alive, and I would say something positive has been embraced. And in that sense, I'm very pro multiculturalism as a, as a concept. Um, as a political ideology, uh, it also feels very much you know, embedded, part of the mainstream. It's very much um, you know, uh, shapes institutions, practices, policies, uh, and so it, you know, it doesn't feel like it's gone away or suddenly everyone's ditched it. Uh, but I do have concerns about you know, the, the policies and the, uh, the way it shapes institutions. Uh, in the prospect um, magazine that you pointed to, I don't think any of the writers actually use multiculturalism as a way of describing talking about. It was on the front cover, but I, you know, I think that was an editorial decision. And the reason being that the, I think the word multiculturalism does confuse people. And it sounds like if you criticize multiculturalism, effectively you're saying you want Britain to be white and not to have diversity, or that you want to be completely unreasonable and not you know, have people speak English at home and dwell in the workplace and so on. And I, obviously, there are people who do think that, but that's not the criticisms that we were leveling at, multi, uh, at these policies and these ideas. And. Uh, Actually, all the people who wrote in the, the magazine, there were, um, I think there were six or seven contributors online. Uh, as it happens, we were, all, we were all ethnic minorities. Not that that should necessarily dictate which way you would go on this debate, but, uh, but we came to it, all of us, from the perspective of being very vocally anti-racist and believing equality. And so our criticisms of these policies, which I would, I would prefer the term identity politics, just in terms of characterizing it, because I think that gets slightly closer to what it is that we're criticizing. It's the political aspect of these ideas. It's the way they're put into practice and, and, and how they change institutions and laws and so on. And the dynamic of it in terms of political debate and discourse that, that we were critical of. Um, and I think that the, you know, the, the criticisms that Tariff has outlined are, you know, are criticisms that have come, come up. And I share some of the criticism. I'm not altogether convinced by Tarek's um, rebuttals. I think some of them are, you know, still stand and still very important. For instance, I do think the critique of group rights actually extends beyond Muslims and the, beyond the new groups. I think actually the old groups are, it's also problematic to apply uh, those, those rules to, you know, blacks, women, etc. Um, but I do have a, a critique of identity politics, which fundamentally is that, uh, 
course, individuals exist within groups. We all do. But we exist in more than one group. Sometimes we choose not to exist in that group. Uh, sometimes those groups change and they're fluid. And although culturally we recognize those groups and we live in them, we inhabit, we inhabit them, uh, they are you know, groups that give us support as well as can be a, a barrier. But once you institutionalize them into the state, into the law, once you start defining people in that way, you create a very different dynamic. Once you change an individual's relationship with the state and you identify them through their group, their belonging to a specific group, then I think you, you start treating them fundamentally differently to everyone else. And I think that has had problems, both in legal, a legal sense in terms of how people are recognized in law, uh, but more fundamentally, culturally, politically, that people do start to think of themselves differently. And what's interesting in the past 15 to 20 years, and I'm by no means an absolutist on this, I recognize that pragmatism has been you know, one of the best things about the way that Britain has handled the, you know, the arrival of immigrants. I mean, I've, you know, my family are a product of pragmatism in a sense. You know, my mum would go to school PA, PTA meetings and do the sari steel bands and samosas <laughs> thing. And that's actually, as a, you know, as a way of culturally dealing with new people arriving in your town, pragmatism is important. You do have to have teachers um, and you know, local authorities recognizing that there are differences. But my concern is that in the past 15 to 20 years that that very delicate balance of pragmatism has shifted. And that so a new dynamic has emerged sociologically. And I say this as someone who has not come to the question in terms of political theory, in terms of trying to argue out in the abstract what's a citizen, you know, how many rights does a group get compared to an individual and so on. I, I, I say this as someone who's done research looking at multiculturalism and practice and, and, or identity politics practice and the dynamics that emerge in a town or in an institution or in an area of policy when a group starts to be treated differently and starts thinking of itself as different. And a number of you know, criticisms which Tarek didn't go into in, in, in his presentation but I, might, might be in, in the book, um, so maybe, maybe you could come back on this, is that I do think that there is a, um, uh, a, a number of problems that come from uh, identity politics. First, it's a tendency to misanalyze why groups face disadvantage or why they experience disadvantage. Of course, racism plays a role in our society. No one would deny that, unless you know, they really were stupid. Of course it plays a role. But the extent to which it determines group outcomes, determines educational outcomes, um, even you know, mental health, policing, all these things have become, it's almost you know, impossible to question that. Actually, I think the outcomes and the, the, the dynamics at work have been very complicated, and often class is um, ignored as a factor, or it's, it's underplayed as a factor. And, and I, I would argue that sociologically, it's inaccurate to start describing uh, groups as, dis as being disadvantaged because of race. And I, you know, maybe we can have a debate about that. But I think it's it's less helpful than people suppose that it is. Um, the other concern I have is that the growth of um, the identity politics lobbying. That yeah, there is, a, there is an intense competition between groups who demand their own recognition, who demand their own rights. Uh, and the imperative is to demand separateness or to demand a degree of special treatment, which is not in the interest of that group, I would argue, but has become quite alienating between that group and, and other groups and other, the rest of society. That has happened to an extent with Muslims, and I think that's very unfortunate because I think often Muslims face 
say, similar problems to other groups, but they've now become increasingly characterised as being separate. Um, and I, I think that has largely to do with the way that government has engaged with Muslims and the way that Muslim groups have engaged with government and in the media. Um, and then the, I think the, the, the other critique that I have uh, is about the racialising of people uh, in institutions, in policy making. My, my work is largely focused in the arts and cultural realm. And for people who are working in the arts, being black or being an Asian, having a, being an ethnic minority, does change your relationship with the Arts Council and with local authorities. And there is a huge amount of ambivalence about that from artists because on one hand they will get funding for playing that game. On the other hand, they don't want to be seen as a black artist, as an Asian artist, they want to be seen as an artist. And I think people feel very confused and uncertain about how they're supposed to be, but they do feel uncomfortable that they're pigeonholed and the same happens with audiences. So I think that's an important, it's an important thing to recognize that, that particularly a younger generation find the, the language which is used around arts policy and race as being very, uh, you know, just does not make sense to them, it's not relevant to their experience of their life. And then finally, I think that, and this is um, uh, obviously um, going to be a, a bit more difficult to gauge and, and difficult for people to measure, but I think that the, the politics of you know, identity politics and the way that it's shaped political discourse is that it encourages a culture of victimhood amongst ethnic groups. Uh, that's not to say that all ethnic groups feel victims, feel like victims. That's not to say all ethnic lobbying groups treat themselves like victims or talk about themselves as victims. I think this is a general tendency, which is that in order to uh, engage with the state, in order to demand or to get extra rights, to, be, to receive resources, you almost have to talk up your disadvantage, your relative disadvantage to others. And this happens at the level of you know, government, government lobbying and discourse. It also happens at the level of playground, the school, um, the degree to which, and this, this does happen, and you speak to teachers, you know that when an ethnic minority is being criticised, is it because I is black? I mean, the joke about the Ali G joke is that, you know, we all kind of vaguely recognise the terror if you're accused of being a racist. Uh, and I think that, you know, the, the way in which racism is monitored in this country uh, um, is misleading. I think, of course, racism exists, but our response to it, our reaction to it is actually out of proportion to the way that it is experienced. Um, and obviously that's uneven around the country, but I do think that the way that statistics are used can terrify people, it can give people the wrong impression. Um, I should probably sort of wind up. I'll just, uh, the final thing I would say about this is that the last 10 to 15 years have, uh, have brought many benefits, and it's important that critics of multiculturalism also recognize that, and do not become so absolutist in their criticism that they they give a misleading picture. I think Britain, compared to many other countries, has actually a very good um, and healthy and dynamic debate about these issues. And you don't feel, uh, you know, obviously some people um, will descend into personal insults, but in general, I think that you know, we've been very grown up in the debates around this. And, um, and I would argue that it's important to kind of hold on to that and to, to accept that perhaps there are lessons to be learned and we might want to do things differently in the future. And, uh, and that doesn't mean that you have to take one side or the other, but that there's a, there's a period now where we should tentatively be willing to engage, and I think Tarrant has done that, um, and has, has tried to do that in this book, where we try to engage and work out, well, maybe some of these trends, some, maybe some of these policies haven't worked as well as we'd wanted, why is that? And the discussions that I've had with institutions about some of the policies they've, they've made in place five or six years ago, that they have been willing to discuss that, and I think that's, that's a tremendous testament to you know, the, the culture of political debate in this country. Thank you very much.
very much. Thank you. Um, Sonia, uh, we've, we've talked about pragmatism. I'm going to hand over to you because I know that's part of your piece. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Um, uh, about 10 years ago when I was discussing uh, identity politics, and this was online, um, I heard a phrase which has stuck with me since. And there's a, there's a guy who came, came to the website and says, just because a dog is born in a stable doesn't make it a horse. And, and, it, and it, stuck me, uh, it struck me because it was a, it was a National Front um, activist who had come over on this Asian website and you know, telling us that you know, we couldn't call ourselves British. And now there's two ways of taking this because some of the people obviously turned around and said, well, oh, you know, that, the, all this racism means that uh, people don't want, to, don't want to see us in this country. Whereas I took it the other way around, which is to say, well, I'm going to call myself British regardless of whether they like it or not, and I'm not going to be defined by the way the BNP might want to define me. And in, in one sense, that identity from 10 years ago has mutated and changed a lot since then. And, and I say all this to make an obvious point about identity and belonging, which is that everything's always changing, and we have to change with it. Nothing is static, everything is falling apart, as Tyler Durden says in my favourite film, Fight Club. Um, so now, reading Tarek's excellent discussion of multiculturalism and failures and successes and how it fits into modern society, I, 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 the same thought went through my mind about mutation. And, and funnily enough, I don't even disagree with what much, much of what Munira said. So. So that, that puts me in a, in a particular position, which is actually, let's, let's look, stand back a bit and, and, and think about the discussion in itself, because if you're not in a position to disagree with either of them, where, where do you go with this discussion? And, but my question is bigger than this, actually. Are we trying to flog a dead horse in order to revive it? Um, and do we even need to? So this is a bit of, this is a slightly, uh, this is a more fundamental question than simply a critique of what Tarek is saying. Because I want to say, let's say you want to defend multiculturalism as an ideal. Tarek says it's a vision of citizenship compatible with multiple identities, but not holding up one group as a model to which everyone should conform to. Well actually, I bet most people who read the Daily Mail who said they really hate multiculturalism would also agree with that. There are also people who... Uh, you know, differ between different groups. They they go to the local uh, bridge club or something, maybe you know, and <laughs> and they play um, golf or maybe I'm just stereotyping the animal readers. But you know, my my point is, they would recognise that if you actually engage with them about different multiple identities. So I can't disagree with that either. And so, no one is demanding in the UK that Asian women really wear Asian clothes all the time or shouldn't be allowed to wear Asian clothes. No one is demanding that we only speak Asian uh, languages at home or, uh, or should not be allowed to speak Asian languages at all. Boris Johnson wants a scourge of multiculturalists everywhere, goes out to Trafalgar Square, celebrates uh, Eid in the square, you know, he, he celebrates uh, Vesaki. Um, and, and so, and so the, there is a, there's a point here about pragmatism which Munira made, which is that actually things have progressed so far that, that you, cannot, you can't even avoid multiculturalism even if you criticise it. You, you might want to get rid of it, but in practice it's not going to be got rid of. So that leaves us with 
the point that I'm trying to make, which is, if we, what is the point of fighting old battles if we've actually moved on, if the, if the debate is mutated onto a different era? Let's say you are worried about people being forced to live a certain way of life. Or let's say you're worried about minorities being demonized in the press or how they're being targeted by the police and through stop and search. Is multiculturalism the right framework to discuss those issues? Or actually, I prefer something different. I prefer to talk about civil liberties. Or I prefer to talk about human rights. I prefer to talk about living in a parliamentary democracy where we value rights for hundreds of years. And then you can discuss those issues about stop and search. You can talk about demonization in the press, I think, much better. What I'm trying to say is that there is a danger for ethnic minorities, which is that we talk about debates, we talk about issues, we talk about a language which has become out of kilter with public opinion and leaves us behind. So let's say we don't even want to talk about Englishness. I mean, we're still talking about Britishness, but actually the debate has moved on. And people now talk about Englishness. People want to carry the, the St. George's flag everywhere. They, uh, I have friends who are, uh, you know, Sikh friends who've been uh, wearing the Eng England top, England top for years, for about ten years. What about them? You know, um, I actually, uh, for the first time ever this year, uh, during the World Cup, I, I, I wore, I carried on a massive uh, England flag with me. And uh, for some people that was weird, but actually for a lot of my friends, it wasn't weird at all. They've been doing this for years, and so. So you still see on one sense a debate where people say, you know, people carrying on English flags, you know, are they BNP types, et cetera, et cetera. But actually those people don't see themselves as that. So there is a danger that we sort of talk about uh, issues, we talk about, uh, a, we, we use a language, we have these narratives which are still stuck back uh, to a different era and things have moved on. Uh, and so, so my question to Tarek would be less of a criticisms uh, less of a criticism of what he says, but more of a broader question. Why exactly do we need to save or reclaim the definition of multiculturalism? I'm quite happy to let other people think that it's dead, uh, uh, but talk about it anyway. <laughs> Why do we, what do we gain by trying to revive it, or at least what do we lose if we just say, that's right, multicultural, multiculturalism is dead, long live multiculturalism. Thank you. Thank you very, very much. Um, what I'm going to do, because actually we're getting short on time, is um, I'll just make a quick remark, and then I'm going to open up to, to the audience, and then you each can, including you, Tarek, can, uh, can have a, a go at uh, rebuttaling either your panelists or, in fact, members of the audience. I just want to say, because um, initially I was um, thinking of uh, saying a few words about this, I'm going to say something which betrays the fact that I am both French on the one hand, as in from France, um, and lived a long time in Canada. So I am torn between sort of, you know, deep national republican sentiments on the one hand, and actually um, having studied under Charles Taylor and spent a long time in Canada, um, and, and become uh, very understanding and tender toward uh, multiculturalism. Um, I think the, the only one thing that I want to say is that I actually want to, uh, perhaps in an unpopular way, I want to sound a slight note of caution about pragmatism. Um, you know, I think pragmatism is, is, is great, but uh, there, is, um, there is something about the way that we, that we uh, here I'm speaking with my British Council hat on, uh, that we have embraced multiculturalism um, in Britain that has both gone sort of too far and yet not far enough. And I think it puts us in a, in a very particular space. Um, on, the, uh, on the one hand, we've adopted the language um, quite systematically of multiculturalism, of multicultural 
policy making, um, and we've reaped you know many of the benefits. But but of course we've also um, we are also living with the, the consequences of creating groups of of sometimes perhaps fetishizing uh, groups. But on the other hand, I think that we haven't gone far enough because we have refused in really in many ways to make this a national project, to make this an ideological project. And even though there is um, something uh, uh, that smacks of uh, something you know, a little bit continentally effete or uh, sort of North Americanly naive about deciding that you know, multiculturalism is your project of nationhood, is your, is your state project, there is something about it that I think um, is, first of all, honest and triggers the kinds of debates that really allows us to know what it is that we are making compromises on and how it is that we are making these compromises. Multiculturalism, as David <coughs> rightly pointed out, is really about you know, the art of, of making compromises. And I think that the way where multiculturalism works is not where a few people have special treatment. It is where everybody feels that they can have special treatment. In other words, it is a kind of hyper-communitarian pluralism. If that is your national project, if that is a state project, then everyone feels that they have access, a right, a sense in which they can petition the sort of plural mechanisms of the state for recognition. I think it's only when you decide that you're going to make this actually quite a central ideological plank, quite openly, quite honestly, that you then open up your, uh, your institutional channels absolutely to everyone, to every possible group, whether it's class-based, whether it's racially defined, whether it's defined along gender lines, national lines, linguistics, or other lines. So I think that um, pragmatism, yes, but actually um, you know, a strong ideological project is, is one of the things that characterizes uh, full multiculturalism if we want it to, to work. I'll stop here. Um, I'm going to open it up to, to, uh, to the audience. Please make yourself known if I, if I don't know you. I apologize. Uh, Rafia. Um, I, I was very interested, um, Clark, in you talking about the, the biggest challenge to multiculturalism being this idea of remaking Christianness. And, and Sonny, you, meant you talked about this idea of embracing Britishness and, and in some respects reducing it to just Englishness. I just wondered if, if, if all of you could comment on um, what seems to me to be, I mean, it's, it's just intriguing and also slightly disturbing to me. The front page of the Times ran an exclusive today about the English Defence League and, and the rise of the English Defence League and their, their ideas of trying to connect with European right-wing groups and American right-wing in, in creating an ideology that actually you're talking about, you're talking about remaking Britishness, and they're talking about remaking Englishness. So, and, and, and there's clearly a tension between what they're saying and what we're all talking about, which is this identity politics stroke multiculturalism. So I just wondered whether you could say something about the challenge that you talk about with, with remaking Britishness, Tarek in particular, and what we're facing, which is which is the rise of, of, of the new right and that ideology. Can I can I just take a couple questions together before <coughs> I, I dive back to you? Any anyone else? Otherwise, yes, um, yes, the gentleman and then then the young woman. Yeah. Thanks. Um, yeah, I'm interested. Um, 
I'd like to know where, uh, whether we're on, uh, it's still for all of us uh, difficult to be British, um, or you know whether we're in this together, or whether some are more in this than some others. Um, for example, in uh, the context of global financial crisis, um, could there be a threat posed by multiculturalism of collectivizing um, you know, the failures of the state um, and individualizing the possibilities for you know, changing uh, anything in, in a broader perspective, you know, changing um, the system effectively? Thank you. And last one. to some of the things that um, people have uh, raised. Obviously, there isn't time to respond to everything. But uh, perhaps a good place to begin with would be with um, what you asked me, Dean, especially as it reinforces what Sonia was saying about, well, why is it worth even debating whether multiculturalism is dead or alive or just ill? Um, well, I mean, it's not the word multiculturalism that I want to debate. Uh, I think Sonny said, if I heard him rightly, that, well, actually, we could pursue a policy or a, a societal project like this, but just call it something else. And it would be, as it were, multiculturalism in stealth, uh, because we'd be renaming it. Because we know that the term is highly damaged. So why expend so much time and energy and, if you like, political capital in rescuing such a damaged term? And I've given this a lot of thought, and you might say, well, you know, I can't be, you know, pretty disappointing that I haven't given a lot of thought, I haven't come up with an alternative. <laughs> but I really haven't, but I'm still open, so I haven't drawn a line to this. If someone says, 
oh, I've got exactly the term for you that captures everything that you want to argue for, uh, and so on. Yes, um, privately or publicly, please help me. Um, I would want to distinguish between different kinds of multiculturalism for a start, so that immediately means that I wouldn't accept that, oh, it's okay just to have any kind of multiculturalism. I mean, very, very simply, I'd say that there are at least three major kinds of multiculturalism that we know about. Uh, I mean, lots more, but I mean that kind of people in the room might be familiar with, and certainly that has been expounded in, um, let's say, Anglo-American social and political theory. So one is the kind of multiculturalism that in the 1980s led to what were called campus wars in the United States, arguing about the canon, all about Eurocentricism and its opposites and so on, and it created kind of big counter-identities, blocks of identities like Afrocentrism and so on. Now, that's not what I'm arguing for. I think that was a, uh, you know, it was a mistake, certainly it was a cul-de-sac, and I certainly don't, um, uh, I don't follow that very strongly at all. So that leaves the other two. Well, one of them, you mentioned Charles Taylor Campbell, one of them is really very much uh, led by um, liberal political theory, or liberal political theory and theories who engage with liberal political theory, depending on whether we think uh, Charles Taylor is, is liberal or non-liberal. Um, and I think that's much more um, the source of my arguments, my multiculturalism, about a citizenship-based multiculturalism, where we say that what kind of an identity is a citizen? What is it that we share in common? And once we start asking that, then obviously we're also talking about difference, because difference and commonality go together. And so how do we, and this is partly beginning to answer your question, Razia, how do we create and change, because we don't create them in a, a vacuum, we can already start off with something, how do we you know, maintain, modify, and remake our collective identities given the various kinds of differences that exist in society and that, that, be, that have been introduced in the light of the uh, post, uh, well, the light of the, the migration of the 1950s, 60s, 70s, and so on. So that's really the kind of project of multiculturalism I'm engaged in, and people might say it's good or bad or whatever, but you know, just, just why it needs a term. And then the third kind of multiculturalism, which I'm not against, but I just don't think it's sufficient, is I suppose what we talk about when people say, I'm in favor of a multicultural society, or diversity, or what Paul Gilroy calls multicultural and so on. That is just fluid processes centered on individuals and individual interactions where nobody is supposed to be identified as a group. I just think that is a model of society that doesn't exist. There's no social science that can support that view of society. So when we talk about um, you know, things like integration or remaking Britishness and so on, yes, these will be contested. The fact that you know, the English Defence League wants to remake Englishness or remake <coughs> Britishness or, or whatever, and I do too, doesn't mean that we're in the same project. It means that we've identified similar kinds of problems as opposed to, say, just talking about unemployment or pensions or something like that. That is true, but of course, we are contesting what our collective identities 
are and ought to be in, into the future. And so, uh, you know, that's, that's the kind of uh, the political difference when you say, well, you know, you say you want to do this, but they say they, they want to do this. I want to offer a completely different conception of what it is to be British, to be English, to French speaking, or for that matter, uh, English and so on. Uh, I mean, it's a, it's a fairly complicated question, obviously, about English and British, and maybe when I'm given another little space to answer the questions, I'll, I'll attend to that. <laughs> okay. I, wanna, I also want to go back to, to you know, two of the other points that were made and, and open them up to, to, to both of you. Um, what is it, one of the things you've, you've said um, is about, well, are we, you know, are we all having the same difficult time uh, about being British? And there's, you know, there's a veil sort of uh, ethnic question there, but there's also a, a question about class, right? You referred to the financial crisis. And what is the relationship, actually, between multiculturalism and class? I think this is really quite key because, um, you know, one of the things about uh, some of the more successful multicultural models is that they are ostensibly places where class distinctions are less pronounced than they are uh, perhaps here uh, in, in the UK more, more traditionally. So what is the relationship there? And also, you know, to pick up on what you said about, uh, you know, actually the discussions that we need to have, you know, and we're, we're still not able to have these discussions. And it, it made me think of something that, that you wrote, Mira, about the fact that, you know, there's a growth industry in terms of, you know, how to relate to, to one another, how do we make sure that we engage properly with groups. And after all this, actually, are we still not having the right kinds of conversations? You know, are we, are we still stuck, and why, why is that? Yeah, I think diversity training probably makes you less confident. Um, <laughs> Mainstream, the ones who are advantaged, and in their experience, that's not how they feel. 
So their reaction to stories of ethnic minorities getting uh, advantages, getting special treatment, uh, is, a, uh, is one of a sense of, you know, why are they getting special treatment? We don't get that. And there is some truth to this. It's not to defend racists at all. There are schemes in this country which are only open to black and minority ethnic people on the basis that they're disadvantaged. Now, it doesn't matter if you're a middle-class black person applying for these schemes in some cases. This happens in the arts. If you are a black student who wants to be a curator, you can go on a course at the Royal College of Art that is only open to ethnic minorities. It's not open to white people on the basis that they will have a greater disadvantage. Now, there are, white, there are ethnic minorities who are middle class who are going on that course. Is that right? I would say no. I would say that we should question that. Now, that does happen. I, I think what happens is that there is a hysteria amongst certain parts of the population about the sense that they're not, being, they're not advantaged. They don't feel that they are being uh, treated in a more privileged way than others. And so that's something that we have to recognize and at least acknowledge and try to work through. And maybe ethnicity is not the way in which you should start to engage with people. I mean, Catherine asked the question, isn't, has multiculturalism gone far enough? Do we need to have a system where everybody gets special treatment? Every group. Every group gets special treatment. I mean, to me, that's democracy and, you know, kind of liberal <laughs> society where everyone gets treated the same. And uh, recognise that state policy, government engagement with people is only one aspect of our social experience. There's politics, there's culture. There are lots of ways in which people express and experience group identity. But the extent to which that is enshrined in institutions, I think, has become a problem, and it's created a dynamic. So there is, there is a disagreement between us, and I think um, uh, it does come down to analyze, looking at specific policies and programs. And the, the, the essays that we wrote at Prospects looked at different policy areas, looked at mental health, looked at education, um, the arts and cultural sector. I looked at communities and the, the way these dynamics work. And I, I just think it's worth understanding how they work on the ground, because actually there are lots of ethnic minorities who feel uncomfortable or question the way in which they're being characterized too. And, uh, you know, so the theories, you know, the kind of Charles Taylor struggle for recognition, that, you know, the theory is important, but, the, but it's only when you see it in practice that you realize there are, there are certain limitations or contradictions in that theory. And, and even though, you know, liberal secular democracy has its limitations, uh, it at least allows for a degree of freedom and autonomy for the individual, I think, that, that the, these sorts of uh, group politics, group identity rights politics don't, don't quite do. I'm not sure if anyone's arguing against uh, democracy and civil liberties. Um, but I want to pick up on a, on a few things Manira said and then respond to those two important points. Um, you know, let's let, let bring down some of the... the there, there, is a, there is a danger that people on the right, well, I'm not sure... Well, let's say Manira ha, uh, fits, uh, fits events into existing narratives. So the rise of the BNP apparently is recent. It's, it's never been recent. The, the, the BNP and National Front have been around this country for, for decades. It's just that more recently they've realized that the, the way to push their agenda might be better to become more mainstream and focus on being much more uh, sophisticated and professional and then approaching it through the media rather than the old school ways of just going out to areas and beating people up. So the BNP has always been around and race politics uh, race conflict has always been around this country. It's not just risen recently because of you know the rise of multiculturalism, which is the first fallacy. And secondly, the second fallacy is that um, 
you know, there's never been class war in this country until uh, uh, multiculturalism came around. This is rubbish. I mean, you know, uh, working class people have been demonized in, in the right wing press and the mainstream tabloid press for decades. You know, it's the, the rise of the Chad thing is, is just a, a recent phrase. But this whole idea that, you know, for example, even this idea that you raise uh, taxes on 50%, uh, up to 50%, and suddenly there's class war, just gives you a good example of how, the, you know, even during the miners' strike, you know, they, they were uh, demonizing uh, people who worked on those mines. So this idea that all of this is suddenly new because of multiculturalism, I think, is a very... Uh, fashionable but very uh, short-sighted way of looking at how things have developed in this country over years. Um, we do need a framework where people feel that they have a seat at the table. That's true. And I wouldn't go down this route where you do have people broken up into multiple identity groups and say, you know, the Muslims get a seat at the table, so do the Sikhs, and so do the Hindus, and, and uh, we shuffle them around and suddenly it's blacks and whites and Asians. Uh, that doesn't work. I, I don't think it does. Um, but what you do need, what you need is stronger democracy. And, and I think in that framework, we are talking about, and that's a framework where we do have fundamental problems, which is that this country is, and I hate to sound all SWP on you, but <laughs> that this country is becoming uh, where, uh, much more class, uh, uh, you know, broken down by class, where the political and the media class have become much more middle class, and, and working class voices are being not heard anymore. And so, you know, there are attempts to try and deal with this through race, but I, 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 and that I agree with Mira. I don't think that works. But you can't just um, ex don't you can't just think that you know democracy itself is not uh, in, in problem. It is. I, I think British democracy itself is going through a crisis, uh, and that underpins a lot of these issues and race uh, and identity politics, which has been in this country for hundreds of years, you know, through, ra uh, through class, is this is just the, the latest example. Um, the problem, though, I think, and Rosie, to answer your point, is that what we do on the left is that we talk about these differences purely through economic terms. And so the Labour Party is, has lost its language around solidarity, lost its language around community and identity. And it's become so afraid of talking about these issues that they just talk about problems that people face or the, in, in economic terms. So we only talk about the fact that people feel uh, you know, scared of globalization, that people are scared of uh, losing their jobs, which is all true. But people are also afraid of uh, cultural differences. They're also afraid that you know, the person next door is not uh, interested in the same things that they are. That, that, as a local community, they can't connect to each other. Uh, there's only a few Labour MPs who talk about this. John Curtis is probably the most uh, prominent. But the point is that there is a language that the Labour Party, that the Liberal Left, has run away from, and that's our fault, and that we have to, re to rediscover that language. And I think that's the only way we're going to deal with the EDL, because the EDL pro problem is partly economic, but it's very much cultural. And so we have these debates, you know, around these issues around race and identity. And the problem is that they're almost seen as a ghetto where race and identity is like, um, like you know, race and identity, just, just, just for the Asians to talk about, or the Muslims to talk about. But as I've said before, identity politics in this country has been around for decades. 
uh, and so the idea of solidarity, of, of lo what, local solidarity, of local community, how do we empower local communities, how do we get people to talk to each other more, that is not discussed enough. And I think unless we deal with that, we're not going to deal with the EDL, which I think is a cultural issue. Um, uh, and the second point is about framework. You said about framework, and I think civil liberties to me is a primary framework there. And democracy is a primary framework where you do talk about how do people uh, contest these issues, how do people deal with these issues. I think civil liberties and democracy does the job, isn't it? I'm going to open it right back to the floor. Uh, here. Uh, to you. Uh, thank you. Uh, I feel I, I wandered into um, a very important set of uh, lectures where I, where I haven't done my modules. <laughs> <laughs> uh, because I'm several steps behind. I wonder if anybody else here thinks I'm several steps behind. One, in terms of being updated about the thinking, and two, in the, uh, you know, the establishing what that great romantic, muddled, marvellous idea of multiculturalism was, and when it was, and what the, the theories and people and groupings behind it were. And I'm hoping, Tarek, that it's all in your book. Explained, explained without the language, if you see what I mean. Because, uh, like, uh, because I think the sociological speech absolutely bedevils all sorts of um, debates that deserve a wider area. And the moment you're into the sociological speech, you cut out about 95% of your potential audience. And that's a problem. It's a very real problem. So I'm thinking, I don't quite know where we are, but some little observations which are necessarily dating ones. Um, one, the dread shadow of dark as hell hangs over everything. Um, <laughs> and we just had a say, do you see dark as hell going out into um, the new Britain about five or six years ago? It was completely ruined. And uh, you know, if I were him, I would try to suppress the program and funny. But two, going back quite a long way, the marvelous romantic muddle of some bits of multiculturalism that said, and I believe it hugely disadvantaged a significant group um, and has over the generations, namely black boys, the idea of patois at a time when black boys did not mean a whole range of Somalians and so on, it meant largely Caribbean kids. The idea that you fetishized and romanticized patois and told people that they should use it at all times of day or night, hugely disadvantaged a group of people who, and that disadvantage has, you know, cascaded down the generations. So it's a, I understand the romantic thinking, but I think it did a great deal of harm. I also think it interferes with language. You know, and at the point that some of those marvelous romantic ideas interfere with language, and I'm not being a, a spitting image puppet that says, ooh, this is political correctness gone mad. I think if you, inter you interfere with language at your peril, and you distort the language, you distort the debate, and it redounds on whoever distorts the language. Thank you. I'm um, just next to you, yes. Uh, just a couple of quick points regarding um, just 
So, I mean, I kind of resist this point. I think it's kind of, I was being said that identity politics is a kind of fast track way to success. A um, final? A fast track way oh, sorry. to success. Thank you. That, you know, that's how people get their data and more than their fair share. Because um, I think you have to look at identity politics in context and, and also have a kind of wider analysis and look at other much more unfair ways in which people get a leg up in society, like um, other privileges, like your, your boss uh, and other members of the bulletin club who, you know, who have kind of inbuilt advantage along the way. And that, that's a form of identity politics as well. So I think we're going to critique identity politics. I'd like to open that out. Um, and also there's this quite old-fashioned idea, I think, that's coming um, from the population here, which is that um, identity politics is only about you know, Muslims working together or West Indians working together, because um, not the organisations I know will involve you know, kind of black and minority ethnic people, and very many different stakeholders working together, and also working with white counterparts in local areas as well, because they, they understand Very much. One last question in the front. Um, I'm going to watch the answer. Um, so touching on the questions there, mm. I wanted to uh, do my best as well. Um, three issues I want to touch on. First of all, and you're not going to like this. Uh, <laughs> okay, we've just been called old-fashioned yes. and retrograde. Go ahead. <laughs> <laughs> campaign on race issues, sometimes they campaign on like local roads, you know, um, for the parties and then people's expenses. Okay, I'm going to give each of you two minutes, essentially, to, um, to reply to all of this. Um, are we incomprehensible? Are we old-fashioned? Uh, have we invented categories that we don't need? Um, you know, 
Uh, who'd like to start? <laughs> Tarek, I yeah, think sure. you'll start. <laughs> well, given so little time, I think it's pretty important that I should promote my book, really. So <laughs> first of all, um, say to Peter, you know, um, I have um, tried to write over the years um, things that I hope are accessible beyond sociologists and academia, and this is a collection of stuff that's been published in, you know, like Open Democracy website and The Guardian and so on, and not just in academic journals. But mindful of the Trade Descriptions Act, um, I'd have to say it is all relative. I mean, you know, I, I couldn't guarantee that um, no sociological speak is to be found in that book. But I hope that it introduces you to it so that you can speak it yourself as well, rather than um, exclude you from it. Um, okay, so that's about a minute and a half left. I guess I'll, I'd like to say something about class then, um, because I didn't uh, get a chance in the last round. Um, and I'd, I'd like to um, link that to perhaps uh, the issues that uh, you, Manila, raised and have talked a lot about victimhood, and also um, about targeting particular groups um, for particular advantages or to redress what are seen as... Um, uh, exclusionary mechanisms. I mean, I think that um, we can't actually avoid um, targeting people at all. When we say, uh, you know, oh, we won't uh, have uh, positive discrimination or positive action for ethnic minorities, we'll only look at people by disadvantage. We have to identify what the disadvantage is, and we have to say those are the people with disadvantage. We might choose um, income. We might choose geography, you know, that they live in a particular neighborhood or within a, the city of London or whatever the, um, as it were, the political unit of administration, administration is. Um, when we talk about class, that is an identity. I mean, um, I very much agree with uh, much of what Sonny was saying about uh, democratic politics and so on. I mean, people who felt they had a common disadvantage organized to participate in a politics and to extend these possibilities of participation in order to get certain things done by the state or, or done by other uh, agents in society. And I think that what is being called here identity politics is actually just like that. It's a continuation. Um, if you like, think of it as a form of interest politics. People get together because they think they have certain interests in common and they work to promote, promote those interests. I think if, if that helps to see it easier, why these groups exist and why they mobilize as groups or want to mobilize as groups. Um, and just to conclude about the point about victimhood, I actually think that the, the discourse of saying, you know, we're discriminated against or we're the victims of racism and therefore we want to eliminate that is actually an extremely energizing discourse. It mobilizes people. And this is exactly what class politics has done. When people say, we are um, getting too poor, a too limited a share of the national cake, or why are we only getting the crumbs and other people getting... Uh, large slices of cake. This was a way of identifying themselves as victims, but of acting to change that. And actually, I think this is exactly what 
<coughs> being referred to as identity politics has done. It gives people uh, forms of group pride, of uh, channels of mobilization, of pressure politics, and these skills by which they become practitioners in democratic politics as a whole. Because the more you participate, the more you learn how the system works, the more how you can get things done and so on, you become a Democrat. You become a participating Democrat. So I think that the uh, contrasting discourse which says, well, if we focus on class disadvantage, that's somehow focusing on real things, but other stuff is identity and victimization and created by academics and so on. As you can see, in the short time I've had available, I don't accept that um, dichotomy. Two, two minutes. Sure, but, but actually that, 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 that's not a problem because I think what people are saying merely is that, um, or I'm saying at least merely that, yes, it's true, we are talking about interest-based politics here and actually victimization politics, and, and I completely reject this idea that victim politics has only been uh, associated with religion or race. I mean, we're currently having this massive debate about the comprehensive spending review and how it's going to hit the poor people in this country hardest. And the trade union people are trying to uh, organize massive demonstrations. That's in their interests. That's them playing victim politics, saying we are the victims of this Bullington club who is taking money away from our services and, uh, and take putting money into the banking system again. Um, that's not a problem for me. You know, I'm actually happy to play that victim politics and say, yes, we need to fight back. You know, and so to a certain extent, this idea that suddenly, you know, black people and Asian people start playing victim politics, oh my God, it's all, you know, held in a handcuff. Nevertheless, the problem is that there is a danger that if you start playing victim politics on certain issues, that you do end up um, creating these. Uh, well, that's where Manira is right, is that you end up creating state policy which says, we're going to put you into specific groups and then you, uh, you, know, and then you get benefits based on, on your identity. So all I would say is that there is a danger that we, going back to the beginning, end up talking about and trying to defend multiculturalism when actually things have moved on. I believe that... Now, we're in a different situation where people are actually much more interested, I believe, in Englishness, or, or at least trying to deal with national identity. Uh, and, and so we need to talk about that um, as well, and, and to try and negate some of the, the tensions around this idea that you know, um, multiculturalism is suddenly the evil which is uh, you know, destroying the, the central cohesion of our society. It's not, but at the same time, there's no point trying to defend it. I believe just just let it go and just say, well, okay, fine, let's uh, let's deal with the with the other problem, which is that people just generally feel disconnected from the system. Mira, um, I I don't think that class politics is the same as identity politics, and I don't think class identity, in the past at least, maybe today, has become more of a cultural identity. But I don't think that was what it was. It's always been a cultural but I think class politics is more than identity politics. Um, and I think it becomes much more determined in terms of how people live and the experiences they have. The key thing is that being working class in the past was not about just asserting working class interests. It was about a vision of society and the quality 
Um, therefore, you know, if you go back and look at Letters and Literature from St. Mark, it was about the progression of society in general. And in that sense, it was for everyone. And that's the thing that I think we need to hold on to. And perhaps, as somebody was saying for Labour, that it's lost sight of, which is that solidarity between groups, regardless of their differences, is important and that you can unite around a shared vision of society. And I think that that was um, the best aspects of working class politics. And I don't think identity politics has the same uh, uh, has the same thrust to it because of the competitive nature in which it, uh, people are thrust. I don't think that's necessarily blame of lobby groups as it happens. And I think that there are lots of individuals who are very concerned about the communities that they have, but they are forced into these particular patterns of behavior and operation. Um, somebody asked about, uh, or somebody made the point that identity politics is not a fast track, especially compared to other groups like the Bullingdon Club. Um, I'm just, I'm curious about, you, I mean, obviously you're an ethnic minority yourself, I'm presuming. Your, what's your story? You, do you see yourself as disadvantaged? Um, not, no, no. I mean, so what school did you go to? You know, what kind of uh, upbringing? School, but you feel disadvantaged feel, in some way? No, I feel I'm up to about 15 years old. Yeah. <laughs> but, but, but I don't, yeah, I think if you, no, I, I don't, I mean, if you're asking me, do I feel myself as being a victim in the way that perhaps other people in society are. And the important thing is that we, I, th I think that a lot of these policies um, give the wrong impression and emphasize the wrong things and actually encourage government and politicians, policymakers to see ethnic minorities as automatic victims. And that's, that's increasingly not the case today. And, and that's why I think it's important that we have a proper analysis. When we wrote the prospect thing, it's very interesting that some of the groups if you go to Operation Black Vote's website, you'll see the commentary that they wrote, Simon Woolley wrote, when he said, I, you know, I can't believe our own people would do this to us. Mm -hmm. Basically, how could, they, how could they say we are, you know, you know, things have changed? How can we permit this debate? And I think it's very important that ethnic minorities in particular have this debate, even if they disagree, that they're allowed to debate it. And it's because, it's, because effectively, that's the most passive thing you can do to a person. You can force them to not speak, not to talk about their own experiences. I don't think that identity politics is the way to improve society or progression. I do think democracy, you know, good politics, you know, arguing for people, not just because they're in your group, but because they're part of your society. And so, you know, I, whatever you might think of Boris and you know, the Bullingdon Club, I don't think that it's a case that they, you know, they only run the show and you can't, you know, you can never, um, you know, you can never participate in that debate. Great. Um, I, I feel as though we were, <laughs> you know, there is, we, could, we could go on for, for much, much longer. I think that one of the questions that hangs in the air when we start talking about uh, victimhood, disadvantage, um, 
uh, the capacity to demand redress and demand recognition is actually where we draw the reserves of confidence in order to be able to do that. You know, is that confidence entirely to do with how we're treated as individuals in a democratic system? Or do we recognize that some of that confidence may come from a, a collective sense that we draw from whatever communities, in the plural, we might, we might belong to? Um, I think that one of the things about uh, multiculturalism that is often highlighted as, as a potential success is precisely the capacity to be able to really feel that you have um, you know, the, the confidence, the access uh, that perhaps your parents or grandparents might not have had uh, for, for whatever reason, whether you're a, uh, an ethnic minority or whether you're a, or whether you're a woman or whether you're working class, etc. It's the, um, I think that multiculturalism has delivered on ethnic um, and, and, and racial lines uh, some of the spaces where that confidence can, could be built up. And, I, and I, I would hate to see that, you know, that baby be thrown out uh, with the, with the bathwater. Um, I thank you all very, very much for staying until now, but first of all, I'd like to thank Harit, Madhuri, Samira, Munira Mirza, sorry, uh, and Sonny Hundal uh, for, uh, for joining us and for being really very, uh, quite, uh, quite candid and, and engaged. Thank you very much, all three of you.